Well, good morning. About 30 years ago, I was part of a church, a really good church, ended up working for this church. And uh, something used to happen every January in this church. For three weeks, the vicar, the person who did my job, would stand up and give a three-week sermon series on giving. And it became known as the January Beat-Up. And if I'm honest, that's how it felt. Because for those three Sundays in January, this vicar would beat us up. And he would beat us up every week. Sometimes he would physically use the Bible to beat us up. And people would stagger out of those church services. Attendance used to decline during those three Sundays because people began to realize what was happening. Now, somehow the message got across. Somehow it was the largest church in the diocese and gave the most uh, financial support to the diocese and to the Church of England. And it had a big budget. People were very generous in that church. But if I'm honest, most of us gave out of guilt. Most of us gave, gave in the hope, albeit futile, that maybe next year, if we gave enough, it would be a two-week sermon series <laughs> on giving. And if the week year after that we gave a little bit more, then maybe, maybe, maybe we could get it down to one week on giving. Now, that is not the aim of this morning's talk. The aim of this morning's talk is to not make you feel guilty. You know, we're in a, a spirit this morning, as Libby's mentioned, of being generous to each other, particularly those of us who are English. Um, you know, we need your mercy. We need your generosity. We need your compassion. We need your understanding, just as we exercise it for the other nine years. Um, you know, we, we, we need it to be reciprocal. We need it to be there. And we need it to be generous to, to each other. And the aim also of this morning's talk is not to get stuff out of you. That's not what this is about. We can feel sometimes a bit awkward. Clergy, church leaders like me, can feel a bit awkward talking about money. Christians aren't comfortable talking about money or about giving. Sometimes it feels as though clergy, people like me, people like Libby, we talk about giving because we're asking you to pay our salaries. We are. Or we're asking you to give because the church, the ministries that we have, need money in order to be able to, for them to be carried out. That's true. But that's not what this is about. What this is about is releasing something in you. It's about enabling each of us to become more like the people that Jesus has always intended us to be. And the reality is that somebody somewhere is telling us what to do with our money. And the reality is it comes down very simply that it will either be Apple or it will be Visa or it will be MasterCard or it will be RBS, etc., etc., or it will be Jesus. And the choice is actually very simple. 
But just acknowledging that awkwardness, let's pray. (coughs) Father, we just give you this morning and we pray for the next few minutes that you would help us to think differently perhaps, to think in a new way about money and about giving and about all the good things that you give to us. Thank you that you are a generous God, that as we've just been singing, your steadfast love never ends, that you're a God who is abundant in provision. We cannot outgive you. All things belong to you and come from you. You own, as we sang in that first song, the mountains that we see around us. You own the whole earth and the whole universe. And we pray this morning that you might teach us what it is to give in response to you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting spiritual discipline to think through how you feel about money or possessions. If you look at the screen, here are some words that describe different emotions, different thoughts that people have when it comes to money or when it comes to possessions. And it might be even this week that you want to think through when you're thinking about money, when you're thinking about stuff, when you're thinking about things... Which of these emotions, which of these thoughts are registering in you? Are you delighted, disappointed, anxious? Are you grateful for what you have? Are you envying what other people have? Are you trusting for the future, perhaps? Do you regret your attitude? Do you regret not having as much as somebody else? Do you want something more? Are you aware, perhaps, of the fact that some of us are a bit greedy about different things? You, you find yourself driving a, a 12, 13, 14-year-old car, and you think, well, maybe I could get a car that's less old and, and a car that has music. Um, whatever it might be, maybe it's contentment. Maybe as you think about your possessions, about your stuff, about what you have, You're able to say this morning, you know what? I'm absolutely content with what I have. Maybe you feel angry. Maybe you feel angry about people who've got more than you. Maybe you feel angry about people in the world who haven't got enough. Maybe that's a good anger. Maybe it's a bad anger. Maybe if you've got lots, you feel guilty. You feel guilty about the amount that you have about the amount that you have in comparison with not just people who are thousands of miles away, but the people where you live, people who work alongside you. You see, there's a whole range of different emotions and different thoughts that this subject of money and giving can conjure up. And yet generosity was something that marked out the early church. If you read through the history of the church and how it came into being, if you read passages in Acts 2 or Acts 4, one of the early descriptions of the first followers of Jesus Christ, something that marked them out from all the people around them, was that they were generous, that they sold stuff and gave stuff. They shared things in common. And alongside their compassion and their care and and their, their, their willingness to take risks for God was the fact that they were generous. And they were more generous than the people around them. 
So much so that their generosity was commented upon again and again. So you find Luke in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, or Acts chapter 4 and verses 32 to 35, again and again, making reference to the fact that the early Christians, the first church, one of their characteristics was generosity. Well, where did they get that from? Well, they got that from listening to the words of Jesus. Those words of Jesus that Naomi read for us a few moments ago. So if you've got a Bible, either on your phone or your tablet or a real, you know, real-life Bible with paper and stuff, um, then turn to Matthew chapter 5 and what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The context is that Jesus is teaching his followers, his 12 disciples, probably with 10, 12 others who are listening in, and about 5,000 others who are eavesdropping into what Jesus is saying. He's teaching his followers how to live life as it was meant to be lived, how to live life on God's terms, how to live life in the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, what we call 5, 6, and 7, he starts to describe what that sort of life is like. So he goes through what we call chapter 5, things like anger and adultery and divorce and revenge and swearing. And then he comes to what we call Matthew chapter 6, three more overtly religious or spiritual topics, fasting, praying, and giving. And he says to his followers that he wants them to be different. He wants them to set new standards in their approach to praying, fasting, and giving. So at one point in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 20, he says this, unless your righteousness, that's our righteousness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When he goes on to speak about prayer and fasting and giving, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, he says, don't be like them. So he's contrasting what his followers will be like with the people who are religious that everybody knows. So he says, when, when you pray, don't pray long, wordy prayers. Don't babble like the pagans, because they pray in that way so that people will think that they're spiritual. Oh, that some Christians might have paid heed to this. You know, you and I have been in those prayer meetings, or you've been in a connect group meeting. I've been in staff meetings. And, and people have prayed, and they've prayed, and, they, and you thought, who, who are you, what's going on? Who are you trying to impress? Remember when I first arrived in Scotland and, and heard my first Scottish prayer or way of praying? I'd never heard... Oh, Lord, we are but worms. <laughs> and on it went, it went. I remember going to a prayer meeting with, with Rich and Vanessa, and this guy prayed, and it must have been 12 minutes. And I wasn't depressed at the start of the prayer, but at the end of the prayer, I was depressed. Jesus says, don't pray like that. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. Just tell him. So when you pray, pray differently. When you fast, fast in such a way that other people don't know that you're fasting. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they, they put sackcloth and ashes on. Everybody knows that they're miserable. 
You know, it's, it's like people coming out of Murrayfield, yet everybody knew who the English fans were yesterday afternoon, because they were the ones going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's once every 10 years, but, but you could tell the Scots. The Scots weren't like that. Everybody could tell who was miserable yesterday. Certainly I could on Facebook. Jesus says, when you fast, fast in such a way that other people don't know that you're fasting. Be normal. Smile. Be happy. Don't be like them, Jesus says. And if he says don't be like them about fasting, if he says don't be like them about praying, then he also says don't be like them when it comes to giving. So Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. To make a point, he makes this extreme point. He said, imagine a Pharisee or a teacher of the law being preceded by a group of trumpeters, by a fanfare, as they come into the temple. Trumpeters go ahead of them, make an enormous noise so that everybody in the temple looks around and everybody can see the Pharisee walking in as they walk over to the special box and put their gift in with a loud boop so that everybody else knows that they're spiritual. Jesus says, don't give like that. Because if you give like that, in order to impress other people, you will receive your reward in full, but exactly from where you want it and nowhere else. So if you want to impress people and get recognition from people, you will get recognition from people. But that will be as far as it goes. Jesus says, give humbly, not wanting recognition. And then he says, in such a way, in contrast to giving it with trumpets, I want you to give in such a way that your, your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. And it's as if your, your left hand is, is giving the money, but the right hand is clueless as to what's going on. And it's trying to find out and discover what the left hand is doing, but it doesn't know. Now, somebody has made an interesting point that perhaps it's only about giving to the poor that it should be secret. We have this sort of idea in the West, particularly in Britain and in America, that somehow giving should be in secret. There's a difference between secrecy and privacy. No one else should know what you give. Well, I heard some teaching recently that said, that's fine about alms to the poor. So money that you give, perhaps to Bethany, or, or money that you, you might give to somebody on the street, or money that you give to charity, then do that in secret. But that's different from money that's given to the church or money that's given to the temple in those days. There were tithes, there were offerings, and there were alms for the poor. And alms to the poor, they should be secret. But tithes and offerings, other people should know about those. 
So you might give tithes, you might give to the temple, that's what a good Jew would give, 10% of their offering. And that gave towards the upkeep of the temple, it, it went towards uh, the upkeep of the clergy, so it went towards Libby's clothing allowance, it went towards Libby's shoes allowance. Um, we, we need that money, we do. We, and Libby shops in, in the charity shops in Stockbridge, but we do need that money. That's a tithe. It comes into the house of God. It comes into the upkeep of the building. It enables the church to be the church. It enables us to do all we do. Alpha, student work, ministries, youth work, children's work, soul food. All that we do as a church. But give humbly, Jesus says, not wanting recognition. That's the way the world gives. Our world is full of memorials to people who've given. Rooms that have been named after people. Buildings that have been named after people, funds that have been named after people, scholarships that have been named after people because they have given, because they wanted recognition. Jesus says don't give like that. Give out of humility. Secondly, he says give generously, not what you can get away with. We don't live any other part of life like this. Well, some of us do. You drive nearer and nearer the speed limit to see what you can get away with. Some people live morally seeing what they can get away with. Well, you can live like that for a while, but actually you will get caught out speeding. And there will be consequences if you live life morally on the edge. But living life when it comes to money with what you can get away with, that's not healthy either. And Jesus here is again addressing the attitude. He's saying, please, don't give just what you feel you have to or what is the minimum required. There used to be this debate in churches, sometimes it still happens, about whether Christians should give 10% or not, whether they should tithe or not. There's a huge debate that happened, I remember having a, a huge discussion with someone in this church uh, a while ago about whether you should tithe before tax or after tax, and whether the 10% thing was still effective. Well, there's only one problem with that. When Jesus says your righteousness should outpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, well, the bare minimum they gave was 10%. A faithful Jew, a devout Jew, would give far more than 10%. So they would give 10% to the temple, but then they would give another 10% at one of the three main festivals. They would give another 3% for the poor and 3% of any profit that they made in business, a minimum of 26%. So if we're going to talk about whether the Old Testament principles on giving still apply, let's not argue about the 10. Let's argue about the 26. Because that's where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law set the bar. And Jesus says, our giving should far outpass the giving, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. 26%. As someone said, the tithe was always meant to be the floor and not the ceiling. So give humbly and give generously. Then thirdly, Jesus said, give cheerfully, not out of obligation. As I said, in that church that I belonged to, it was a good church. The, the minister was a good minister. He preached faithfully. But we felt guilty. So guilty. 
And we gave out of guilt in order to relieve our guilt. But seemingly, no matter how much we gave, that guilt didn't go away. Because next January, he still beats us up. Jesus says, don't give like that. Don't give out of guilt. Don't give out of obligation. Remember many years ago, just before we did the building project, Michael Bourne, uh, who is the former Bishop of Chester and Rector of All Souls, Langham Place, just coming and preaching one day on this, these verses from 2 Corinthians, and he said, don't give out of guilt to this building project. If you think you ought to give, don't give. But give because you believe it's the right thing and give because you want to give. And he quoted this verse from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 and verse 7. You should give, the Apostle Paul says, what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, the Greek word is God loves a hilarious giver. Now, if we're honest, hilarity is not the word that most of us associate with the offertory. When we announce the offering each week, some of us may giggle, but we normally giggle because we see how little is in the basket. Because most of our giving goes out through committed giving by standing orders, about 60-70% of our giving, which is fantastic, that's what we want. And I want church that's decided that whatever is taken in the basket, that's their equivalent of the MICA fund, that's just given straight away to other projects, other charities, other churches. Because they recognize that if you call church home, then you should be committed to this home. And you should be committed in your giving as well as your praying and your serving. So we may giggle sometimes as the baskets go up and down the rows. Because we look in and we think, well, if that is the sum total of the church's income, we're in trouble. But hilarity, cheerfulness, is supposed to be the way in which we give because it's supposed to be a light thing, not a heavy thing, not a duty, not an obligation. Because we give in response to who God is and how much he has given to us. Why don't we associate hilarity with the offering or with money? Well, if we're honest, because of those, some of those earlier emotions that we named. It might be guilt, it might be anxiety, it might be fear, it might be envy. We might worry that we won't have enough to live on, or at least to live how we want to live, or how the people around us live. But the problem is, that isn't how God wants us to live. He wants us to live differently. He wants us to live freely. He says that his burden is easy and light, not heavy. It's not onerous. The life that Jesus wants us to live, the life that's worth living, is supposed to be life in all its fullness. It's supposed to be hilarious. Somebody once said, the joy of the Lord, if you've got it, tell your face. Don't bury it deep down. Christians are supposed to be cheerful people. Look around you. Maybe not. But that's what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be cheerful, to give. So when Libby stands up next Sunday, or I stand up and says, and now we're going to have the offering, spontaneous applause should break out. <laughs> We've been waiting for this moment in the service. Please, can we have another one so we can give some more? Won't happen, don't worry. 
But that's the idea. And then fourthly, and finally, give thankfully, not out of guilt or duty. This church has a reputation for many things, and sometimes other people who go to other churches, and sometimes other church leaders will say to me, Our peace and Jesus, it's all right for you because you're a rich church. You're a wealthy church. Without hesitation, I always correct them and say, We do have some people who are wealthy, we do have some people who are very well paid, and we do have some people who give very sacrificially. And we do have some people who give very generously. But we are not a rich church. The difference is that P's and G's is a generous church. And you are a remarkably generous church. In 40 years of being a Christian, you are the most generous church that I've had the privilege of being part of. And over the last 30 years, you have proved time and time again that you are a generous church whether it's in giving to global mission our mission partners whether it's giving to ngos whether it's giving to social transformation or social justice whether it's giving to evangelism whether it's giving to church planting whether it's giving to people who are training for ordained ministry whether it's people who are in need in all sorts of different ways you have proved you've given millions millions i was trying to count this week over the last 22 years while I've been here, how much you, we as a church, have given. And I reckon it must be over £10 million. Well over £10 million over the last 22 years. Well over. That is a remarkable statistic. You are a generous church. But it all comes back to the fact that we realise that we give... Because God is a generous God. Two or three months ago, Libby and I and a couple of others from the staff were in a conference where the speaker was saying that he thinks that the main verb of the Bible is the verb to give. He said, you may think it's love, but love is actually the subject or the object. The main verb of the Bible is give. Yes, God so loved the world, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this speaker said, perhaps we are most like God when we give. Yes, it leads into love and mercy and forgiveness and generosity and compassion being shown to England rugby supporters. But we are most like God when we give. And that's what this is about to enable all of us to become more like Jesus, to become more like God. Because if we're most like God when we give, then we should give. Because as we give, something is released. And whether it's anxiety, whether it's worry, whether it's a surrendering of God's ability to provide for us, as we give, we recognize that actually everything comes from him in the first place. So we give out of thankfulness, and we give because when we give, we are most like God. I heard recently that when we think about giving and money, people in churches, Christians, will fall into one of these four categories. So the first one is what someone's called a self-absorbed owner. 
And this person thinks, what I have is 100% mine. I can do what I want with my stuff. The second is what someone's called an obligated owner. I have authority over my stuff, but I feel obligated to give something. Thirdly, and it might be that even now you're thinking which one of these four you fall into. Thirdly is the obedient owner. I will obey what God says I should do with my stuff. But the fourth one is the sweet spot. That's where we're supposed to be. I have given God 100% authority over his stuff. Because we recognize that what we have actually is God's. See, it's not a question of how much we give. The question is, how much do we get to keep? That's the reality. There is actually a fifth category. And sadly, it's where a lot of people in church today, in this church and other churches, fall. And the fifth category is, I've never thought about it. Real challenge for people under the age of 30. Please pray for me tonight at the 7 o'clock service because it's a much tougher challenge preaching this message to that generation. You see, for most of us who were born between 1945 and 1970-75, the icon of our generation came in the form of a little blue book it was a little blue book that had three initials on the front, T-S-B. And I can still remember when I was four or five being taken to the trustee savings bank and every week putting aside five shillings or whatever, and five shillings, wasn't five shillings. <laughs> In my dreams it would be five shillings, it's probably, you know, whatever it was. But a really small amount of money and after, at the end of a year I might have a pound. Because people born immediately, people like me who were baby boomers, saving was really important to us. Now, people born way after 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000s, Generation X, Generation Y, Generation Z, Busters, as they're called, their icon is something very different. Their icon has got the word Visa or MasterCard. Or, it's even more insidious than that, their icon is a phone. And all they have to do is tap. It's very easy to spend when you tap. It's almost impossible to save. It's almost impossible to give when you tap. And we've got a whole generation, I was hearing yesterday about somebody, a very well, very well-known Christian speaker, who had never, all the way through her university years, ever thought about financial giving. Four years at university, and she was actually serving in Christian ministry, and she had never, ever, ever, ever thought about her finances of being of interest to God because she's under 30. So please pray for me at 7 o'clock because I've got a tough job. 
There have been many tributes paid this week to Billy Graham, a remarkable man of God. But I love this quote that he's reputed to have said, we have been given two hands, one to receive with and one to give with. And we give not in order that we might receive, but we give in order that we might bless. And very simply this morning, I want to ask you where you are in relation to giving. When was the last time that you examined not only your soul, but you examined your giving? If we're most like God when we give, and giving is not just about money, it's about time and care and love and compassion, it's about our heart and our attitudes and our motive, it's about prayer and evangelism and caring for creation and money. But if as a church we want our giving to be generous, transparent and responsible, and those are the three key words that guide the MICA fund, generous, transparent and responsible. If those words are going to be true, then all of us have to own them. And therefore we might have to do some soul searching and we might have to do some wallet searching and we might have to do some credit card statement searching and we might have to do some giving, review, searching, or even, and this will not be unusual, giving, start, reviewing. Because it shocked me to discover, I know what Kathy and I give, and we give about 13, 15% of our income, we give to other things as well. Kathy is much better with money than I am, ask her, I haven't got a clue. She thinks it's ironic that I'm standing up giving this talk, she knows what I'm like with money. But I know what we give as a couple. The reality is that we are in the top 15 givers to this church. That's not unusual. Clergy are usually in the top 10. So I've dropped down. Now I know what we give. I don't know what anybody else gives. But if we're in the top 15, that for me is a bit worrying. That means that for all the stuff that we went through with Project 21, we need to relearn some of us those lessons, and some of us need to start. Because this is as spiritual as anything else. This is as spiritual as prayer. This is as spiritual as evangelism. This is as spiritual as reading the Bible. Our giving is a spiritual matter. And I don't tell you what we give for recognition... It's a very un-British thing to do, what I've just done. Some of your faces went, woo, steady on, tiger. It's a very un-British thing to do. But I think we need to be honest and say that's where we are. And if people, if churches, if Christians in the UK gave as we are supposed to give, we wouldn't need a microfund. There wouldn't be a parachurch organization, there wouldn't be a church, there wouldn't be a social transformation ministry, there wouldn't be a charity that lacked any funding that it required. If we really gave as we should give. As I say, the point of this morning is not to make you feel guilty. The point is to face reality 
but then to allow Jesus to transform something deep within us. Because this is a very deep work. It goes to the very heart of who we are. Was it Wesley that said, the last thing to be converted in someone's life is their wallet? And for some of us, this is the bit that we find hardest to hand over to God. So where are you this morning? Where am I this morning? Where are we this morning? In response to all the good things that God gives to us, how much are we going to give in response to him?